Welcome to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. We want to encourage, equip, and connect those with a passion to impact the next generation for Jesus Christ. Student ministry can be a lonely place. You might even feel like you're the only one in your church or community that cares about students. Well, know this, you're not alone. People all across the country are engaging Gen Z and care deeply about the spiritual direction of these young men and women. Whether you're full-time, part-time, bivocational, or volunteer, if you have a heart for students, this is the place for you. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dan Carson, your host and director of Student Ministry Matters. On today's podcast, we'll be sharing the second part of an interview that Chris Vines and I had with Theo Davis about the subject of race and student ministry. Theo Davis serves as the multi-site youth pastor at Restore Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. He's worked in youth ministry for 15 years in a variety of settings, which include church plants, rural churches, mega churches on the East Coast and now in the Midwest. Theo doesn't claim to be an expert on race relations. On his Instagram profile, he describes himself simply as this, pastor, artist, husband, father, black. Now, Theo came to my attention when I ran across a Facebook post that he had shared entitled, Eight Things My White Friends Can Do About Racism. The post has gone viral and has been received by thousands of people. And as I investigated who was writing this post, I found a a fellow youth pastor who loves students and wants to help them navigate this world through the lens of the gospel. Let's listen to part two of our conversation with Theo as we address points three through eight on his list. The third point that you make is this idea of continue to educate yourself. And I, I really, I appreciate that, especially for those of us who are teaching students and working with students. Uh, man, education is a big part of who we are. We study God's word to show that, to teach it, and to right. share it. But in this context, it's a little bit different. And, and really, it, it's continuing education on the history of our country and the history of African-Americans. Because if you, if you look back, I mean, we're, uh, you know, whether it's public school, private school, charter school, homeschool, generally in February, Black History Month, there's, there might be a little, you know, two-week window where different schools will talk about, you know, slavery and talk about civil rights, and then the unit's done and we move on. It's not integrated throughout um, all of American history or, or how things affect one another. And, and the reality is that most of us, including African Americans, do not, are not fully aware of how, uh, the past is affecting us today. And so, um, as white youth pastors out there, if you have students of color, or even if you don't have students of color in your ministry, I assure you that your white students are interacting with students of color, whether it's uh, in their schools or even online through social media. Uh, we are so interconnected now that if we don't have a good understanding of our history, we're going to mistake things that are happening today as misunderstandings, as not a problem. But if we start looking at the history of our country and the history of uh, African-Americans in particular in our country, suddenly we begin to see 
the present in a clearer light. Uh, take, for example, um, there's lots of things we could talk about, but one of the things I was actually talking to one of my friends just the other day about um, African-American culture and specifically black families and how it's, it seems to him, this, uh, my white friend, it seemed to him that like black families were just pretty broken and he was just kind of sharing it. You know, uh, we were just being real with one another and that black families are kind of broken and that black culture seems kind of broken. And when you just look at that stuff, like Theo, like what, what do you say to that? Like how, how, how do you reason that? And so I, I say what I said to him is I said, let's, let, let, let's look at the history of everything. The fact that, you know, my ancestors were taken from the Ivory Coast uh, on ships, their families were torn apart, and then they were moved all over the North and South uh, to do plantations. And for multiple generations of people, uh, my ancestors were, were born, and they were taken apart, and they uh, had no sense of family and all of the atrocities that happened to them over that period of time uh, just tore the families apart. And so any sense of heritage was lost. Uh, move forward to the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, black people are free. Yay, awesome. But they have no land and they have no jobs and they have no real rights. They're free, but uh, you know, there, more work needs to be done. And so now both mom and dad and most of these families who were split never found one another but the families that were together okay mom and dad have to like figure out how do i work i you know both of us have to work outside of the home we don't have the luxury of staying in the home fast forward to jim crow laws and the segregation that happened in our country where i i believe it's the constitution but it may have just been another law that said that things need to be black and white need to be separate but equal However, when we look at what was actually happening, it was anything but equal, which is why it was finally struck down. Um, and so what happened was African-Americans were segregated to these communities. Their homes were devalued. Often, uh, you know, you can look into white flight, which is a whole other topic, but uh, white families would move out of these neighborhoods in the city. They would sell uh, they would sell these homes for less to these realtors, and then the realtors would overcharge the African-American families these homes, but those homes weren't that valuable. And so now, over the course of 30, 40, 50 years, whereas um, some of these suburban homes that were initially bought for $60,000, $70,000 have now appreciated to $200,000 versus uh, these African-American homes in the city, which were bought for you know $30,000, are now worth $20,000. And so there, there's this, gen, like each what each generation does affects the next generation. It affects uh, equality. It affects wealth. It affects so much. And when we understand how the history of things have led to this moment, suddenly, oh, well, yeah, of course, mom and dad still have to be out of the home working multiple jobs because they can't get a full-time job. And so now kids are kind of running wild and taking care of themselves and the family's breaking apart. I myself grew up from a single parent home. Um, you know, I've forgiven my dad and love my dad today, but uh, growing up, I had a lot of anger and was upset with him for not being around. Um, and so understanding the, the history of things that have led to today suddenly give us a better picture of the oppression, of the systematic racism that's happened, of the, of the subtle 
racial biases that happen. We could even talk about the criminal justice system, but um, there's, there's, and I will mention this one statistic. Uh, we have the largest prison population in the history of the world right now in the United States of America. Uh, African-Americans make up 37% of the prison population, African-American men. However, we only take up 7% of the American population. So that alone says that uh, something's not right in the system. Uh, there is some injustice happening where it's being unevenly certain things are being unevenly applied to the African-American community than our white counterparts. And so, yeah, just doing some research, some reading some books to understand will help us in ministering to um, the, the people of color within our community, as well as our friends and just having a voice on what's happening nationally as well. It has surprised me as of late. I one of those history points of history that I was completely unaware of was the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm 47 years old. I'm, I'm relatively well-read, but for some reason this had completely escaped me. And to come across things like that is just, um, it's important for us to, to continue that education mm. uh, of things that have happened in history because it does shape what's happened today. Absolutely. Um, the fourth thing that you share talks about just seeking out black authors, podcasters, and others to to learn more about the black experience. What are some some good avenues, some places, some things that we can look into to help us understand that um, as a white youth pastor, who do I need to look to? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah. Looking to current voices to understand what's currently happening is just as important. And so uh, I'm going to recommend one thing right off the top. It's a podcast called serial with an S. Um, and it's actually not put on by a black person, but what they're doing is it's an investigative podcast. That's looking at the criminal justice system, a, a particular court in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's just incredible what they uncover in these eight episodes where they're recording interviews. They're just kind of walking about. It's really well done, award-winning podcast. And that alone would really help to open some people's eyes when it comes to criminal justice, but also just the black experience in general. There's a there's another website that if you want to check out, it's called The Root dot com. And it is a blog website. It's a news blog website with a variety of black authors who are writing about the black experience from, from a ton of different perspectives. Uh, quick disclaimer before you go there. Uh, it's not a Christian site. Um, and it is written to a black audience. <clears throat> and so, uh, some of their posts are super awesome and happy and joyful. Other posts are very cynical about race in America and other posts are downright angry. But I believe that all of those voices are good to absorb and to just be aware of because it's going to paint a more complete picture for us and for the white community uh, what the black community is currently thinking versus just hearing it secondhand or even just hearing it from me, uh, continue to expand uh, your understanding. And there's a, there's a book, uh, an author that I would recommend as well called um, The Color of Compromise. It just came out this year and it's about the American church's complicity with racism. And that also, it's a kind of a double whammy. It goes through the history of race in our country, but also also, the, how the church was complicit either in its silence or direct um, support of certain racial 
tendencies that were happening in our country. So yeah, that would just really help to, again, give uh, you firmer feet to stand on when you're talking about this and trying to engage with your white friends or with your white students about these issues. The color of compromise, does it address this issue of the worship hours being one of the most segregated in our nation? Yes, it does. And it talks about, uh, it talks about the root of that, um, which I actually wasn't fully aware of, um, and why that came into being. And so for me, even as an African American, that was something that I never read into or looked into. And it, it discusses the roots of that, why that came into being. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I have a clearer picture why this is the case in these cities in our country. Now I can make a little more effort to do something about it uh, with that understanding of history. I know that one of the things that I struggle with, my wife and I have had this conversation before, is this idea that my church doesn't necessarily look like what heaven's going to look like. We are a very singular, well, I can't say that completely, (laughs) but we are a church that is primarily white and our neighborhood doesn't look like that. Our Northwest Arkansas doesn't look like that. It is diverse. And so our church, to me, should represent that. And so I hope that'll help me give me some insight. And so I'm excited by that. Well, as we go on, um, you you had, I know that the first four points that you shared were from, was it from a book that you had read or? Yeah, that was from uh, The Color of Compromise. So they okay. talked about uh, lament. They talked about uh, educating yourself, black authors, and I forget which other one was theirs, but then the rest are mine. Well, the others, the things you talk about, to me, like this next one is really, really important, not just as parents, but especially as student pastors. Um, you, you say, keep speaking to your children and your students about these subjects. Mm-hmm. Is that where we're, we're headed with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was something that I came up with because it's... You know, when I talk to my white friends and we're having these conversations, one of the things I hear over and over is like, oh, like, I know they need to learn about this, but I just I don't want to shatter their world. I don't want to, you know, if if they don't know about racism, like, you know, I don't want to plant that into their heads. But the what I always come back with is that we learn about race from one another And if they don't learn it from you at an early age, they're going to learn it from someone else at an early age, whether it is through, you know, long conversations or they just start picking up on things. If we're not talking to our children and educating them and being very overt, because sometimes we might think like, oh, I don't I don't need to say that. Our family's not that way. Things can be picked up on so subtly and easily. Kids are sponges, you know? And so I really encourage parents to start talking to their kids about race in kindergarten, just on age-appropriate levels uh, from kindergarten on, and that it can't just be a one-and-done conversation. I, I liken it to the fact that we wouldn't just have a single conversation about love, sex, and dating, and then say, all right, you know, wipe our hands. Okay, we're glad we got that out of the way, although some families do. Um, but I think that the the more appropriate thing is to introduce these concepts when they're young, uh, and then reinforce just like, uh, what is it? Deuteronomy. I forget the exact passage, but, uh, the fact that we need to, uh, teach the word to our kids. We need to write it on the doorposts of our houses, talk about God when we're waking up, when we're going to bed. Um, 
the fact that we are made in God's image, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, he's created all of us, that's something else that we need to impart to our kids. So doing it in age appropriate ways. So it's definitely good to do with our own children. And I've been doing that with my own children, but also with our teenagers, it's important that uh, regardless if our youth group is all white or it's super diverse, we still need to talk about it because that all white youth group, thanks to uh, every kid having a smartphone, is connected to the world and they have a voice and they're going to continue to influence others either by their direct thoughts and actions or by their silence. And so we need to equip our, uh, our teenagers uh, within our youth ministry, regardless of the size, there's different ways to do it, but just to begin engaging them in this, uh, in this content as well. One of the things that I had happened to me is I went into a church in Rogers, Arkansas, and I had all representations. Mm. <laughs> I had um, Asian students, I had black students, I had white students, I had Hispanic students, and this was not a large youth group. Um, it, it was 25, 30, um, and it was just, it was amazing, and nobody thought anything about it. The students didn't, so it didn't really get mentioned. It didn't get talked about, uh, but then in a few short years, as those students graduated out, um, it became a very white group again. Mm. And so I think that it's, man, it's so important to keep that conversation going. Um, number six on your list you've got is talk to your white friends about it. So the best, one of the best things that we can do as white people is to talk to our white friends about racism. Mm. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. again, uh, what I've observed is that most of my white friends are very timid talking about it because of this, uh, this inappropriate idea that was, uh, really, really pushed forward maybe a decade ago, this, this concept, maybe two decades ago, I'm not really sure exactly where, but this concept of being colorblind and that, oh, I just, I don't see color when I see you, you know, I don't, I don't think about color. I don't think about the, the fact that you're black. Um, but the problem with that is, uh, as a white person, you're 75% of the population. So it's a privilege that you don't have to think about color. Whereas for me, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about because I'm black. Um, and so the concept of being colorblind, it's actually, it's not a helpful thing. And, uh, you know, it's not something we should continue to repeat to one another. Um, and so, but, but from that, <clears throat> came this thought, this idea that, uh, oh, well, we, we just shouldn't talk about race. We just shouldn't talk about color because I don't see color. We've solved it. Everything's good. Um, but that's not the case. And so what I really try to encourage my white friends with is for them to break the ice with their friends, um, with their white friends, because you have a voice with a group of people that I simply don't have a voice with, uh, regardless if, you know, I'm sure if I knew them, they met me, like we'd get along, that's great. But the more that uh, white people can feel empowered because they've lamented, because they've done their own, you know, research, their history, because they're, they also know some black authors and they're a little more in tune with what's happening uh, within African-American culture, uh, they can talk with, they can feel more comfortable talking with some authority to their white friends and just bringing up the topic. And again, you don't have to do it in this super PR way, but simply approaching the topic, it swings the door wide open. Our Kid City director, Lindsay Partington, who I just uh, admire so much, 
She's a white suburban mom living in a suburban area with all white neighbors for the most part. And she, she and I would have these conversations and she's like, Oh, Theo, I just don't know what to do. Like, I, I, I want to bring it up, but I'm afraid of how they'll think about me that they might even think that I'm racist because I'm, I'm seeing color and I'm seeing all these things. And I just encouraged her. I was like, Lindsay, you are so articulate. You are so loving and caring. People know you and respect you. If you feel compelled to bring up the conversation in an organic way or to slightly correct your friend if they're saying something that they don't even realize is racially charged, um, I believe God will give you the words to do it in a grace-filled way. And she has just been so awesome having conversations with her neighbors, having conversations with church members and just in the community. Uh, She's just been awesome. And because she made a decision to talk to her white friends. Now they are talking to their friends and they're reaching out to, uh, to me and to other black leaders in the community and more, uh, unity is happening as a result of my white friends talking to their white friends. I appreciate the encouragement in that regard because sometimes we, we live in such a PC culture Mm. that we're afraid to say things or even talk about things anymore. Mm-hmm. And it just gets hard, especially as those of us who serve in churches, we're supposed to be kind and loving, and we're supposed to be articulate and correct in, in all of these things. And I'm I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Right. I was afraid to share my heart on social media these last few days mm-hmm. because of the impact that it might have on what people thought of me, mm. you know, and these are, and my social media is primarily aimed at my friends who are primarily white. Mm. And, but I, I need people to know that I, I love people of color and I want to stand with them at this time, man, just uh, that's so important. Talking, talking to our white friends about it, yeah. talking to, to family members, to, to neighbors, to, to coworkers, yeah. you know, those people that are part of our lives. Yeah. And again, the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is not to kind of stick your flag in the ground that, you know, you're a social justice warrior. No, it's it's out of the relationship that you have, that we gently and humbly bring stuff up, that we gently correct our friends if something's going on, uh, because that's 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 how we do it in the church. That's how we do it with the love of Christ. Um, And that's how real change is going to happen over the course of time. Um, because of the pandemic, we have, we are still having youth group via zoom <laughs> uh, with a tiny little group right now. And so last night we, we met and we talked and I just threw this question, how, how are you doing with all of this? What does this feel like to you? And, um, you know, those type of, those conversations have got to happen mm. and it's an all white group, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we need to be able to talk about it and be able to, to communicate. Well, you've got two other things on here. We want to get to them. The number seven on your list is to get on a mailing list and consider supporting an organization that advocates for social justice, racial equality, or et cetera. Um, so what are some some ways we can do that? What are some some good things to get connected with? Yeah, so I'm going to be intentionally vague here. 
And okay. I, I want your audience to Google and to track down some black leaders within your communities, uh, wherever you're listening to this, because I think that that's going to be a great conversation starter, right? Like, man, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I listen to this podcast. They want me to get on the mailing list of something for racial equality or social justice. I don't know what that is. Where do I start? And that can serve as a springboard with maybe some of the black churches in your area, even if it's not right next door or 50 miles away, um, that could serve as a really helpful thing. And the reason I say get on the mailing list, because, you know, like sometimes us as Christians, especially youth pastors, um, you know, we've we've been trained theologically within our denomination or outside of our denomination. We got to have our uh, all of our ducks in a row and everything's got to be all connected. Like I get that. And and I think sometimes we tend to not want to support something because we don't fully 100 percent understand or agree with everything. But I think getting on a mailing list and understanding what they're doing, uh, how they're doing it, how they're utilizing their resources helps us to have a better understanding beyond, you know, maybe just the the values page on whatever you know organization we're talking about. And then after, you know, a couple of months of just observing what they're doing consistently, you might consider uh, being a part of it in some way, whether it is volunteering, whether it is supporting financially, um, whether it is just making it more aware, maybe even in your youth group, there's something that you could do. There's an organization here in Kansas City called Hillcrest Platt, uh, Platt County, and they run a series of thrift stores which fund a transitional housing program, uh, and the city just loves this this place. And I'm actually now... <clears throat> For the last year, my family's been a part of the transitional housing unit. Um, so my family, we live on site of uh, the young adult section of these kids experiencing homelessness, 17 through 24. And we just provide a family atmosphere. We provide family um, like resources. We do life skills with them once a week. We take them grocery shopping once a week. And that's a way for us to continue to contribute to the community. And even though their particular mission isn't to directly uh, target African-Americans because they're a homelessness uh, group and they're, tr- they're dealing with issues of poverty. Uh, I knew that we were going to encounter lots of African-Americans and people of color. And that's exactly what we've encountered. And so it's been fun for me, not only being a part of this part-time on top of working full-time at Restore Community Church, but also getting my youth group involved in it. And so I've brought my youth group to, um, to the site and we've cleaned some apartments together. Uh, they've done some yard work. They've moved boxes around. We've done some fundraisers, some food drives and whatnot. And it's this really unique opportunity where I'm not just teaching them theology. I'm not just teaching them morals and, Hey, let's connect with Jesus, but I'm showing them firsthand. Hey, I'm in the community. I'm boots on the ground. I'm being missional minded. I want to invite you into this as well. Um, and it's just, it, so something as simple as getting on a mailing list can evolve and turn into this amazing partnership that's going to impact many young people, uh, both homeless as well as your own youth ministry without a significant amount of more effort on your part. So that's what I mean by the mailing list. Well, that's fantastic. I know that some of the the best experiences that my student ministry has had 
um, is over the years, the SOAR conference that um, that Chris is the visionary leader for had, was connected with something called Mission Arlington in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We'd go in. It was just one day. It was just just one event, but it was very short. And that was the problem, mm. um, at least with long term. I, I love the idea of getting more connected with something in our community, something that can make a difference and and researching that and finding local leaders mm. in that realm. I mean, yeah. that's that's incredibly powerful. Well, let's let's look at this last one, because I know this last thing that you have is probably where a lot of friends struggle. It is this idea of don't demonize people who do racially charged things. Mm. This is a tough one, not not just for me, but for many others. How do we deal with this? Yeah. So the reason, and honestly, this, I, ironically enough, uh, of the hundreds of messages that I've gotten over my post from it being shared so many times, this was the point that I got the most pushback from. Um, not only from, you know, atheists, but from Christians as well. And, and really, here's my heart behind it. When you're having conversations with your white friends, or you're talking to people in your community, before long, someone's going to say something, or someone's going to make a comment or do something that you recognize as racially charged, um, that you recognize as, oh, that's a, that's a little bit of a racial bias when you say that or you do that as you become more aware of the plight of African-Americans. And what tends to happen is we tend to jump down that person's throat. We tend to uh, almost demonize the behavior, not, not just the behavior, but the person themselves. Like, I can't believe you said that I didn't raise you or I didn't marry you like or or whatever it might be. And we make that person out to be evil when, uh, again, uh, from the book of Romans, we've all sinned and fallen short. We've all, uh, had offenses. Uh, you know, I can't remember the scripture right now, but I'm pretty sure uh, somewhere Jesus or Paul tells us to have grace for one another's offenses. Uh, it's important that we don't demonize people that that do these things because otherwise no one's ever going to be comfortable to talk about the things. We need to uh, white people with white people and black people with white people. We need to give grace and some level of understanding and forgiveness when things are said or done for the purpose of learning and moving on better than when we first came into it. Uh, I use the example in the article of Amy Cooper, I think her name is, that's the, the white woman in New York who had recently called 911 falsifying a report saying that, you know, an African-American male is attacking me. Um, Please send the police. And she, you know, if you're not familiar with that, you know, you can look it up. But essentially, first she made the threat that I'll call the police and tell them an African-American male is threatening my life. And then she actually did it all on video. Um, And from that, Uh, so much stuff has happened to her. Obviously, there is an outcry of justice, which is good. She, you know, she ended up losing her dog because uh, there was a dog involved in the video. Uh, she ended up losing her job, uh, which which is sad for her. And now there's even talks of, you know, passing laws saying that if you falsify reports on a 911 call, you know, you could go to jail. So there's all of this. There's all these ramifications of what she did. And w- my belief is for me, even though I wasn't the one she directly offended as a black person, like I forgive Amy. 
Um, I forgive her. I give her grace. What she did was dumb. What she did was hurtful. What she did was, um, I believe, intentional because by warning the the black man that, hey, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American male is threatening my life. That was very specific um, because there's a clear narrative in our, in our country that black people can get killed by the cops. And so that that's just so hurtful for me because uh, whether people sometimes feel they're racist or not, and she she didn't feel that she probably, um, <clears throat> and she gave inter- plenty of interviews, didn't feel that she's racist or is racist. And I don't think most people are racist, but we have some racially charged biases that can rise and fall at times that we may or may not even be aware of. And so for me, I forgive that woman and I don't want further harm to come to her. I think, I think, uh, to me, I feel like justice has been done. It's time for us to forgive her. It's time for us to, uh, let up. Cause unfortunately the internet is like a mob and the, the mob does not know when to let up, when to, when to say enough is enough. My desire for her is not for her to, you know, never have a job for her to be depressed and all like, no, she's apologized. Whether her apology was sincere or not, I'm not God. I can't judge that, but she has apologized. And as for me, like I forgive her. And that is one of the defining aspects of Christianity. That is one of the defining aspects of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we are a people who forgive, that we are a people who extend grace because we recognize that significantly more grace and forgiveness has been extended to us. Therefore, we need to forgive our uh, forgive our the trespasses of others the way that we have been forgiven. And so um, got a lot of pushback from that from both uh, non-Christians and Christians. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, did I misspeak? But no, like that's to this day, this, that's still what I believe. And so to my white friends, I would say, as you're interacting, resist the temptation to demonize the person Yes, the actions and the behaviors need to be modified and corrected and called out. And just because we forgive doesn't mean that we still don't call for justice, that we still don't call for change. Um, you know, it's not a blank check. You know, you wouldn't, if someone, if you're in an abusive relationship, you don't just keep forgiving and forgiving without making any changes. No, you change needs to happen. Conversations need to happen. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say we should not uh, demonize people because that, that we can't hold. And I'll end with this. When we forgive, we are releasing all of that hatred we have built up in us. We're releasing anger. We're releasing bitterness. We're saying, you know what? I'm not going to carry that anymore. I'm going to give that to God and I'm going to forgive this individual for what they've done. And what that does is it helps us to now have a clearer perspective, a clearer mind and a clearer heart to actually enact change. Because when we are acting just out of our emotion, just out of the rage that can uh, bubble up when you you see a police officer with their knee on someone's neck for nine minutes to the point where they die, um, that rage can cause riots, that rage can cause a, a variety of things. And so, um, and one of the pushbacks, just so that your community uh, understands a little bit more, one of the pushbacks I get from my friends in the African-American community is that, Theo, we have 
been forgiving for 400 years. We have been forgiving of slavery, of lynching, of Jim Crow laws, of segregation, of unequal pay, of unfair treatment, of <clears throat> living while black, getting the, the police called on us for barbecuing, for bird watching, for selling lemonade, for a variety of things. Enough is enough. Now's the time to rage out and for action. And I would, I would echo the words of Martin Luther King that, um, you know, the, <clears throat> that the, the riot is the voice of the unheard. And, you know, I, I believe these people feel unheard and it's unfortunate, but all of us listening to this podcast right now, you, you can actually help to make people feel heard. And it comes by lamenting. It comes by listening, not explaining away the offense that you've seen uh, or the offense that's been expressed over and over again. It comes by teaching our children and our teenagers. It comes by educating yourself on the history of African-Americans as well as what's currently happening in the community. Uh, the list goes on. And so the more that we do the work ourselves, uh, the better we're going to be able to have an impact on this generation that we're raising up so that they can move on to other issues. There's so much more in the world that our teenagers, our bright, young, smart, sharp teenagers who have all, who have the, some of the best head start in the history of the world in terms of education, in terms of economic, uh, development, uh, perspectively speaking here in America, um, they can go on to solve the energy crisis. They can go on to solve, you know, global warming and all of these other things that are issues. You know, us as the older generation, we need to do the hard work and have the uncomfortable conversations so we can pass the baton to the next generation and they can move on to some other things while still working on race. But it's not the main thing that we should have to hand down to them. Thank you, Theo. Yeah. Thank you for sharing today, for opening up the conversation and for giving us some insight that we didn't have before. Chris, do you have any questions or something you'd like to add? Yeah, just just one thing. You know, Theo, uh, again, I want to echo what Dan just said. Thank you so much. Man, it's it's very obvious to me that that you love you love Jesus and and that you totally you totally get the gospel. And I, I think I can say this with Dan's approval that man, we would love to just have you back sometime just to talk about gospel issues, just talk about youth ministry yeah. and preaching and and all those kinds of things. And and I just I have one final question. It's just one that's on my brain as a youth pastor, mm. and uh, it doesn't have to be you know long and drawn out. But I have several I have several black students that are a part of our ministry. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, what are some questions or, or maybe what is one or two questions that that I could ask them uh, that would that would allow for them to feel safe and also just give them opportunity to to open up about um, all of this that we've talked about, just the current events. Um, could you could you maybe give me one or two suggestions of just how of a question I could ask a black student, black teenager? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you approach the student, um, make sure that you're letting them know that you're a safe place by lamenting, um, coming up to them and saying, you know, if, if the kid's name is John, like, hey, John, uh, how are you doing, man? Listen, what's happening in our country right now is insane. I, I can't believe the video that I saw of, of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, um, my heart just breaks for the African-American community 
like it's never broken before. Uh, like, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never, and, and be honest with them, you know, let them know, like, I, I haven't really paid attention um, or noticed how big of a problem this is until recently. And, and man, I'm just wondering, how are you feeling? And so what you're doing by framing the conversation in that way is you are letting uh, John know that you're a safe place. You're letting John know that whatever he says, you're not going to come back with, well, you're not, you're not going to come back with logic or you're going to come back with, uh, you know, explaining things away or looking for a debate. You're genuinely trying to care for John. Uh, John knows that you have a similar perspective, or at least you're aware of his more, more likely what his perspective is. And he's going to, he, he'll test the waters a little bit, you know, depending on the relationship you have with him, he might say a few things and then just keep, just keep being a youth pastor, just like you would with any other issue. Yeah. Uh, keep asking follow-up questions as long as it doesn't seem like it's taxing on John. If it doesn't seem like, you know, he's really uncomfortable with the situation and then just listen um, ask how he's feeling, ask what he's thinking. Um, another question you can ask that, uh, that some white pastors in our Kansas city area have been asking me recently is have you experienced any, um, have you experienced racism before? And you will be surprised at, uh, some of the things that they share. Uh, I'll share this one little thing real quick. I asked that of one of our black youth in front of um, a core group of our white youth. And she shared that in high school, um, she was she just graduated, but in, around the 10th grade, she had this group of friends on this uh, sports team, and she was the only black one. And um, when they were, you know, when it was just the teenagers themselves, they all started gathering around her saying, Hey, you did such a great job, my nigger. That was awesome. My nigger, blah, 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 blah. And she was horrified because that word, uh, has such painful connotations with the African-American community. Um, and I know that, uh, the community, uh, appropriates it in different ways and different people deal with that trauma in different ways. But for her, it was, it was a horrifying word. And she spoke up for herself. She said, look, listen, I don't feel comfortable with you guys using that word around me. I don't like that word. Please stop using it. I don't use that word. Mm. And, uh, all of these white kids, uh, began kind of getting around her and saying, Oh, don't be so soft. Like, don't be so P you know, uh, politically correct. Like, you, you know, we're not, we're not on TV or whatever. It's just us. You're our nigger. We, can't you just enjoy the fact that we love you? Blah, 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 blah. And she was bullied into accepting it uh, because her only options was to go to the coach or to the principal and, you know, be ostracized by her community from that point forward. Or she could just kind of swallow it and go along with it and be called that for the the next two years, which is what happened. Um, and she became desensitized, but she also uh, tearfully at this point just felt so crappy about herself and it led to several other things. And so I would say, um, yeah, approach John with, uh, with a humble uh, attitude. Let him know that you're a safe place by just lamenting right then and there. 
ask a few questions. How are you feeling? What are you thinking? And then if it, if you feel like you can take the next step of, you know, have you experienced, man, help me understand, have you experienced any racially charged things in our community? And then just listen um, and don't feel like you have to give explanations thereafter. Just grieve with the kid and, uh, and thank them so much for their bravery and for speaking up. Man, thank you. That's helpful very much. So, well, again, Theo, thank you so much for taking some time with us uh, to be able just to to share and open up. We know that this is important. We know that this conversation needs to continue with our white friends, with our, our friends of color. Uh, we just need to, to keep talking about it and open up and to share our hearts and to, to support one another as we go forward. Hmm. Um, and this is so important with students. We have the ability, we have that influence, and we need to be able to to share with them that Jesus loves loves them, mm. that Jesus can change their lives. Absolutely. And we do that because Student Ministry Matters. That's good. Thanks for listening to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. Get connected at studentministrymatters.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Student Ministry Matters. Until next time, keep up the great work with your students because the work matters.